Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bougay and I'm here with Rachel Madel. What's going on, Rachel? Not much, Chris. I'm always excited for our podcasting days. So let's like dive right in. Well, I have to tell you some, you know, one of the best things I think about doing this podcast is you and I, you know, almost every week get together and we chat about what's been going on in our neck of the woods and our life in relation to AAC. And there's been something interesting going on in my neck of the woods. And that is I have had a good connection with a person who is the computer science supervisor in our school district. Prior to that role, he was in other roles and we worked together and, you know, we've just always been kind of friendly and and buddies and very collegial and very supportive of each other's work. And in his new role as the computer science supervisor, he reached out and he said, hey, Chris, what can we do to collaborate together? And I was like, I know what we can do. We can work on robots and we can work with robots and coding and we can teach kids with autism and other kids who use AAC devices. It's primarily in our in the um, students with autism that we're working with here, but I think it, it spans much larger than that. And we had a meeting where I put together a um, presentation for the... We call them instructional facilitators for computer science, but they're teachers that primarily work to help other educators adopt computer science and integrate it into their classrooms. So that really means, you know, a lot of work doing the the block coding, which you've heard us talk about before on the podcast, uh, and doing robots and things like that. But what those people don't know about is AAC primarily, you know. And so I got to put together a, a quick presentation, you know, maybe 30 to 40 minute presentation on AAC, uh, which part of that was, you know, the history of where we've gone, you know, of block coding and robots and what we've done in the past, but mostly just about to, to help those educators understand the connections between the two. And then the last maybe 20 minutes of our hour long uh, meeting together was brainstorming next steps. And it, Rachel, I got to tell you, the energy in the room was just so palpable. I mean, the those teachers were like, those f- instructional facilitators are going to help other teachers. They were so energetic and so enthusiastic about like, yes, we can make these connections between core vocabulary words and coding and make these social connections with kids working together to program the robots. And there was just this spirit or energy. You know, it's hard to even discuss it and tell you about it because it's such uh, and express it to everyone listening on the podcast hopefully you can hear it in my voice the energy that came out of that meeting like yes we can do this this is this is super fun you know I love that energy and I think we need to like figure out ways that we can tap into that more often because it's like those are the moments that really re-energize you to do what you do you know it's like those moments where you're like excited and like inspired that like harness that, right? And like find more ways to be around people that bring that out in you, to listen to podcasts that bring that out in you. Hopefully we can do that for our listeners. But I think it's so important because you know, especially when we're thinking about work and all the things that we have to do, it's like those are the moments that can really help us like get excited and really fuel us to keep going. So, Rachel, let's talk about that for a second, because I, I'm i super excited to talk about that. You know, um, a couple months ago, uh, my son, Tucker, who's 15 years old, he, right after the, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we had to rush him to the emergency room, and he had an emergency appendectomy. Uh, he started feeling stomach pains over Thanksgiving break, and then, boom, that's what it was. And then a few... I guess a week later, the following Sunday, he found himself in the 
uh, emergency room again. And it turned out that he ended up getting infected and he had to get a, a tube put in. And just the poor kid was, was through the entire ringer, right? I mean, um, of surgeries and being poked and prodded and, and it was in a hospital for many days and my wife and I were back and forth. And so one of the days, the reason I bring this all up now in this context is that he and I were sitting there in the hospital room and I just asked him, like, as he was like kind of the final day, he was getting ready to go home. And I said, so dude, you've been in the hospital now for a week. You've had two surgeries. You've had to have your, your IV moved back and forth. You've had them rip tape off and rip hair out of your skin, you know? Um, so let me ask you, would you have rather spent that time here in the hospital or would you have rather been in school? And his answer was, he thought about it for a second, was very thoughtful about his response. And he said, I think I'd rather be here in the hospital. And it was like, you know, it, it just hit me it, it, like a ton of bricks because I know his teachers and I know they do amazing work and teachers all over were trying to make things so engaging, not just for him, but for all students, you know. Um, and he's still like, no, I'd rather be in the hospital with all of this pain and suffering and, and angst rather than being in school. And I just feel like what you were getting that, Rachel, bringing it back to what you were saying about what can we do in our classrooms to create that spirit and what can we do in the learning spaces that we get to design to create that spirit that you were just talking about, you know, where you are surrounded by people that are energetic and want to be there, that drive you, that provide you with challenging work, but you go and do it because you feel like it's a calling, not because, you know, you get paid so much an hour, you know. Um, and that is, I feel like, the heart of what we're going for here in education. Yeah, I think one of the ways to do that is to really support what students are already doing well and what they're really interested and passionate about. And, you know, kind of circling back to autism, I have clients that I work with who have autism. And um, I just had a conversation with a mom a couple weeks ago and she's just feeling very distraught because he's falling behind in certain areas and excelling in certain areas. And I reminded her, obviously, would we want him to be doing well in all areas of his education? Yes. But let's not forget that he's really excelling in certain areas like math. And I actually, that's, I reached out to uh, Chris because I was asking about those coding web websites, um, because I think he specifically would be a really great kid to get into coding. And so it, it kind of opened up this broader discussion about how can we support the things that he's really interested in? Because I think that that's oftentimes where we kind of go astray in education and we forget, you know, in order for anybody to be really motivated to learn something, they have to be intrigued or excited about what it is that they're going to be learning. And I think there's subtle ways that we can do that, both in the therapy room, if you're, you know, a therapist or a teacher, that doesn't take a lot of extra, you know, energy or effort, but it really has to get to, you know, how can we design these learning experiences to really support kids' creativity and decide and giving more autonomy in what they decide. You know, if we're writing an essay, it's like, why does it have to be this prescribed prompt that everybody has to follow? Instead, like think about all the different kinds of learners and all their interests and have a variety of prompts that they could use. And we're working towards the same thing, right? But we're doing it in a way that really supports kids getting excited to learn about the things that they're passionate about. 
And I'll say yes and to that. Yes and get them excited to learn about the things they're passionate about. And I think another job of educators is to introduce things to kids that they don't know they're passionate about yet. (laughs) You know, like here's some new thing that now I'm totally curious and I'm totally in. And that means presenting more questions than providing answers. You know, it means providing little teasers as opposed to providing every sort of thing someone needs to know about it and letting them explore and learn on their own and guiding them as they do that. And I feel like that's another thing that the robots do and the coding does is that it often like teases you a little bit like, hey, can you solve this problem? Or um, here's this robot. What can you do with it? It's sort of an open-ended sort of experience. And in fact, I'll add to that as well as say that uh, my former superintendent, in multiple uh, times when he was presenting to the school board and presenting to um, the public, he would say our preference is for students to be in-person learning, 100% in-person learning. And whenever I'd hear him say that, Rachel, I would think to myself, why? What is it about 100% in-person learning that is so awesome? And when I think of that question, and I think that's a really good question to ask like at a staff meeting with people and have them like brainstorm that, like pause the podcast now and think, oh yeah, yeah, why is 100% in the room better than distance learning? What is it that I could do by being in person that I can't do distance learning? And I think one of the answers that comes out there, okay, unpause, come back. (laughs) is uh, robots. You know, you can have robots. Most people don't have robots at their home, but you might have that experience in school. Uh, 3D printing. You might not have a 3D printer at at home, but you might have one at school. You know, getting to a a large place that has uh, paper-based books because you like holding it in your hand uh, rather than seeing it digitally, that's a reason you need to be in school. Drafting that and then designing experiences around that, saying this is the only places or really few places you can go to have those experiences. So let's let's put a lot more time into those, I think makes it even more passionate for kids to be there. Yeah, and that's a good point. I've never really thought about it through that lens, but it's kind of like this exclusive thing, right? It's like, well, yeah, like I can't do robots at home, um, but I can read this book that's been assigned to me at home, (laughs) you know? And so like thinking through that lens, like I think is really interesting and especially relevant now that we've kind of, I think a lot of places are doing a lot of hybrid types of models with some in-person and some, you know, virtual. So like, you know, when the time comes, when we're going to be back in life with people in school and in person, you know, how can we really make the most of that time? And I'm sure um, a lot of people are thinking about that, but how can we design our education experiences to reflect that? 100%. 100%. So Rachel, what's this episode about? What's the uh, interview here today? So this is part two of our Talking With Tech Live. We went to the Access to Education Conference and really excited to share the second half of that episode with you guys. We're excited to remind everyone about one of our favorite events of the year, the annual ATIA Conference. ATIA stands for the Assistive Technology Industry Association, and like so many events, this year the conference will be held online. 
The ATIA team has designed the conference in a way that provides attendees more opportunities for flexible scheduling and different registration options. It's going to be awesome. The conference, called ATIA 2021 AT Connected, will be held online January 25th through 28th and February 1st through 4th. The conference will feature the same professional development opportunities we've all come to rely on from ATIA, including an education strand dedicated to AAC, along with CEUs available on more than 150 courses. Plus, there's a ton of flexible scheduling options, so you can attend some sessions live and catch up on others that were recorded. These recordings will be available through June of 2021, so you'll have plenty of time to watch them. This year, there's also a range of registration options, including full conference, single strand, one day, and even a free option. With all of this flexibility and a free registration option, there's absolutely no reason not to attend. Chris and I will be there too. We're leading the course called Designing and Delivering Empowering Experiences to Teach Language Using AAC. This six-hour course is a virtual seminar held over two Saturdays, January 30th and February 6th, both starting at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 Eastern. We've put together an experience that allows you to take a deep dive into AAC. You can register by going to bit.ly backslash TWTATIA21. It's a great example of one of the flexible options you have for ATIA 2021. You can pick and choose the sessions and schedules that work best for you, and you can even take an intensive course like our virtual seminar to really hone in on a topic that matters most to you. And that's not all. Guess what? Talking with Tech listeners can get a special discount when registering for this conference. To get 20% off the full conference registration, go to ATIA.org backslash Talking with Tech and enter the discount code ATIA21VISION, all caps. So head on over to ATIA.org slash Talking with Tech and enter the registration code ATIA2001VISION today. See you at ATIA. So Wendy asks, how do you get staff at the school to model more often? Would you recommend educational assistants be paired with AAC users throughout the day? Would you rec recommend a top-down model, administration dictate expectation to staff and provide training? So how has this worked for other people? What are some successful strategies you've used to get people modeling? Yes, this feels like a really good one to hopefully people can chime in or Come on the microphone if you want to. Allison, how are you struggling? Tell us more. By tell us more, I mean, come on the mic and talk to us. You don't <laughs> have to turn your camera on if you don't want to. Okay, can you hear me? I yes, can. we can hear you, Allison. Okay, well, we are trying, we are actually um, one of the patent schools through the grant that they're offering um, for the AAC, AEM type stuff. And so we are trying to get communication to a lot more of our students. Um, we're just a little old district with not very many staff. And so all the help that we can get is truly appreciated. And so trying to get the teachers to even implement and use these devices in their classroom has been a real struggle for us. I've tried to be, you know, really nice and I've tried to model. I've tried to, you know, be on their side, quote unquote, to say, because I, I was a classroom teacher as well. Um, so I know the struggles that they have on a daily basis. So trying to use 
use those real life scenarios and say, hey, I'm on your side, I understand. But these kids still need to be able to talk and be heard. We've even had some kids that have had devices that have been um, bought through waivers or just personally bought from parents and they just sit on the shelf and not even be used. So it's really disheartening and discouraging when that happens. So really just trying to get the teachers on board to, to even use the devices, it's what we're really struggling with. It just feels like we're getting constant pushback and it's really frustrating. Do you have any idea why you think you're getting pushback? Like if you could generally just kind of get a pulse on the teachers, we'll just use those as an example. Like, what do you think the pushback is? They feel that they do not have extra time in their day to implement all of this. Yes, that is a very common one. Absolutely. It's like, I don't have any extra second. They're overwhelmed with, especially this year with COVID, um, they're just overwhelmed with everything going on. They're overwhelmed with their caseloads. We just have some really high need kids and sometimes don't have all of the help in the classroom to help the teachers. Mm-hmm. So they're just overwhelmed. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a very common thing. I oftentimes walk in, or I did walk into classrooms. Now I, I hop into virtual classrooms and I'm just amazed at how many balls that a teacher has to juggle in their day. And so part of it, I think is, you know, how can we make it more, how can we make more systematic change in the way that teachers are developing their lessons, for example. Um, and I think core words is a really good way to try to do that. Now this does require, you know, some training, unfortunately. Um, so which takes time and we know that teachers don't have enough time, but figuring out ways that you can support what they're already doing and add just one extra little step, um, whether that be a visual support or a core board or, um, a core word of the week or something like that. Um, I wonder if something like that might be an effective strategy for you guys? It could be. And we have a lot of new teachers as well. So just coming straight out of school um, or even with under five years of experience. Um, So they're just even trying to get their, just their regular ducks in a row of what to even do and, and just not having those life experiences or those experiences in the classroom. They just know what they were learned in school, which you don't learn. I know. I know. Don't learn about this. All right. Let me ask Allison, everybody who's participating here today, can you put it in the chat? Have you heard of the impact model? Do you know what that is when I say that? Has anyone heard of that? Can you put everyone, can you put it in the chat? Yes. Lauren has anyone else? Because if you heard of it, I won't go on talk about it, but some people have, some people haven't. Okay, so Allison, the story that you're telling, and I bet Wendy would agree, who wrote the question, and I bet a lot of people would agree, is not uncommon, right? Rachel, you're hearing it in California, we're hearing mm-hmm. it in Virginia, and it's everything in between. And so one of the things that we did in our neck of the woods is we embraced this, this um, research-based model called the impact model. And basically what that says, the, the underlining principle of it is, is that there's a lot to know when it comes to being a good communication partner. There's lots of different skills involved. There's least of most prompting and there's self-talk and parallel talk and all this stuff. And so telling somebody just to model, I'm hearing it from you that it feels overwhelming and that they just, they're not sure how to do it. 
So, and, and, and it's just one more thing. So we embrace this impact model, which says pick one, pick one salient skill strategy, and you're going to work on that. And you're going to do, when you say work on it, you're going to work on it in a very systemic, um, systematic way, not systemic, a very systematic way. So we picked in our neck of the woods, we picked s'mores, which s'mores is an acronym. It's a strategy to learn the skill of aided language stimulation or partner augmented input, the idea of, of modeling on the communication device. It's like, well, if we could teach teachers this concept of s'mores, one, we get everybody using the same uh, mnemonic and same vocabulary and same um, words, you know, we're just be talking the same language, you know, and then we're going to teach them that and we're going to do that in a very systematic way. And so the way we did that was we did trainings. So you actually leave your classroom or in this, you know, like this was pre-COVID. So now we do it via Schoology or a, an online course where we say, okay, we're going to introduce the topic to you of modeling. We are going to show you some video examples. Then we're going to ask you to say it out loud. What is s'mores? S is for going slow and M is for modeling and R is for uh, respecting what the, teach, what the student says. And the second R is for repeating and the E is for expansions and the S is for stop and wait. That's just one mnemonic that was created by Jill Center and Matt Baud, these famous AAC people. But there are other ones out there like Tabby Jones Williper. She created something called Master Pal, which again, it's just a mnemonic to help people remember how to, to model. So that's what we did. So we asked them to say it out loud. We had an introduction, video explaining what it was. We asked them to say it out loud. And then we let them practice in these, like if Rachel and I got together and we practiced back and forth, these kind of um, silly role play experiences. But I got better. People got better in these silly role play experiences because then it was time for the, okay, I'm going to implement it in the classroom. Now that I've watched some videos on it and I've said it out loud and I practiced it in a nice safe space, now I'm going to try it live with students and I'm going to try and do it. And this is where what Lauren was saying about the coaching comes in. We also gave them a couple sessions of coaching where we invited them to reflect on their work. You know, okay, so you were trying to model more. How do you feel like that went? What were some barriers that you saw in place? What would you do differently? And we saw tremendous growth. In fact, we measured it, 16% growth since we started the training to the time of the end of this experience where people got to kind of build their skills that way. So I just talked a lot. What do you think? How does that sound like to you? Do you think that's doable? I think that's definitely doable. It's finding the time as well. I mean, there's just a lot of different factors and I know everybody struggles with it. We yeah, need more hours of the day. Of the day. <laughs> Allison, what is your role? Are you training the teach? Like, what is your role in the district? So I am the assistive technology coordinator. And then we also have an implementation specialist who um, was just hired on this year because we received a grant um, through the Crusade for Children. Um, so we're, we're ordering more devices and more AAC apps um to be able to put them out into the classroom because right now we are doing a lot of low tech um, last year we focused on um, communication boards we just printed one off from online we had the fringe vocabulary words we had the core vocabulary words we're stationed inside our high school and there's a print shop and so they made us a big three by five um, communication board to hang up on the walls to try to get 
the speech teachers involved in it to try to get the teachers and we focus it on life skills, um, teachers involved in it. And um, some of them took off with it, some of them did not. Um, but I do go into the classroom and um, extend training as much as the teachers will allow me into the classroom. And, and, and that's kind of my role, Allison, um, when I am working in a school capacity. And I find one of the best ways to kind of build rapport with a teacher that's kind of like, why are you in here? Are you here to tell me what to do? I don't have time to do what you're going to tell me to do. You know, just asking like, what if we could change one thing about you know, this student's communication, um, what would that be for you? Or if you could, if you could have one thing, I had a magic wand and I could give you one thing, like, what would that be? Cause that question actually gives insight into what the struggles are of the teacher in the classroom. Um, you know, either just generally with the classroom or also specific to a student. Um, and so that's like kind of a, a, a launching off point to kind of build rapport and say, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm here to help. Let me help you in any way that I can. And sometimes that means putting my own agenda aside. Um, you know, of course we know kind of what we need to be doing. We know to be using the board and modeling and all those things. Um, but sometimes it's a little bit slower with some communication partners and educators that you're working with. Um, and so that can be a really helpful question to just kind of see where they're at and to try to build trust and rapport because the more you can build trust with, you know, the teachers and the paraprofessionals that you work with, the more likely they will be to buy in to whatever it is that you're, you know, suggesting or um, training them on. Um, so that could potentially be a good question that you start asking the people that you're, you know, kind of working with. Okay. Wendy also said, would you recommend educational assistance be paired with AAC users throughout the day? And I, my answer there, Wendy, would be yes and no. Um, the, the, a short answer would be, um, if, I, if I was doing some sort of systemic training like this and they were building their skills, then what we'd really want is a culture where the entire school, I mean, the entire school, it, communication partners, the administration, meaning uh, peers, uh, other students, uh, uh, um, the other adults in the in the all knew about AAC, so that we could all be modeling at least a little bit and seeing and respecting that the student uses it. You know, so I get nervous when it's just one educational assistant because of our turnover rates. That oh, when they move on to sixth grade, you know, the person that knows what they're doing, they don't get it anymore. You know, they get a new assistant or that assistant got sick and they're, they're gone or they moved to a different job. We put all of our eggs in one basket. Anybody else have anything to add or should we move on to the next question? Deb says, I, I would also coach the peers and assistants on how to use AAC in the classrooms where the teacher is slow to add. There you go. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. When you are thinking long-term for a child, but he begins talking and no longer needs the AEC device or uses the device, how do you get rid of it? When you get rid of it and he asks where it is, what do you say? So I have my thoughts, but I'm really curious what other people would say here. I know this feels like something you might see on like a social media post that like gets like rapid fire responses. <laughs> Anyone want to join us? Hi. Courtney. Hello. Hi. I have a question. Sure. Why okay. do you have to get rid of it? Yes. That was my question, actually. Even for um, non-verbal -ver communicators, like... For example, sometimes I don't want to call somebody. I want to text somebody. So depending on my mood. 
Absolutely. I mean, is there really a reason to get rid of it? I mean, you could, uh, you could model using the verbal language, but do you have to get rid of it entirely? That would be my thought. I completely agree with that. Like the fact that the student is asking where it is shows me that the student wants it, which shows me that there's no real reason to get rid of it in my eyes. I'm curious who asked this question, if you could give us more information about the situation. My question is, Rachel, if they're if they're asking for it, is maybe is there a need to get rid of it? I mean, is that is there something that is stressing them out that is making them be stressed out that they're asking for it? Yeah. Like is there a pressure verbally that they're not seeing? I don't know. Interesting. That's it. Yeah, I never thought about that. You know, I know some of my AAC users who are kind of proficient, if they get around somebody they don't like to talk to, they'll just stop using their device. So that is definitely something we've heard from AAC users that we've had on the podcast. I'm thinking of Alyssa, Rachel, where they mentioned that, you know, they're they're part time users. You know, there are certain situations where they want to use the AAC and there's other situations when they don't want to use the AAC and it's their choice and not that someone else is making that choice for them, they get to have that choice. So my thought here, the answer that way I would answer this question is the student gets to keep the device until the student says, thank you, I don't need this anymore. And they turn it in. And they could always maybe even make a request to turn it back. Like maybe they just want to, are you sure you want to keep that? You might want to keep that a little bit longer, you know, because there might be times when you still, I haven't touched it and I'm good. You can have it. Yeah, I would agree with that. All those things. All right, ready for the next one? Yes. Oh, wait, Erin? Yeah, so this was actually my question. And the reason why I asked this question is because the situation's a little different. I just didn't take it away. Um, He just started talking verbally a lot. He's actually preschool, so he is um, only four. He was totally nonverbal. He's talking in totally complete sentences. And the only reason why he started asking where it was, was because I started a word of the week in all of my classrooms and I made huge core boards for um, all of my classrooms and hung them up. So when I started doing my language lesson and we did the word of the week for the kids who are nonverbal, I would point to that core board and he went up to the core board and touched it and said, oh, where's mine? Um, And then I started getting AACs devices for other kids who are totally nonverbal. And he kind of looked at it and said, oh, where's mine? Like he forgot that he had his, but then when he saw the core board and he saw the other AACs, then he was like, oh, I used to have one of those. Where's mine at? So that's why I'm like, do I give it back to him? Mm-hmm. Or Aaron, I mean, give it back to him. I, I'm totally fine with giving it back, but it, I think he's just wanting it because he sees others Like, I don't think he is stressed about talking or anything. He loves to talk. His mom is like, I can't get him to shut up at times. Like, um, now that he's verbal, it's like he just took off like a rocket. So that's the situation. Yes. Well, here's here's my thought process. We could use him as a modeler for all the other peers in the classroom. If he's with other students who are using AAC, there's no better modeler than a peer modeler. 
So I feel like that would be a huge opportunity. He gets to use a device that he used at one point and relied, you know, very heavily on, but now doesn't necessarily rely on it. But more importantly, he can show all the other students in the class how to communicate using the device. Right. He is my core board helper. So he's always my helper to help me find the word on the core board. So, I mean, I, I didn't think about giving him his iPad back to help, you know, to have him model because I don't let other kids touch another kid's AAC. Like that's their voice. So I wouldn't um, let him like necessarily touch their iPad. I don't think just because I don't let other kids do it. So I guess I could give him his back and then he could help like sit next to another child and model that way. I didn't think of that. So yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, no, I love it. And and I totally can relate. I used to work a lot with preschoolers and preschoolers, especially with a device in a classroom, they're all like touching all the buttons. Um, but I think if there's ways that you can incorporate modeling and peer modeling, that would be the most effective way to kind of almost kill two birds with one stone. Um, just because he's asking about it. It's like, yes, let's, you can use this to help your friends. And so I think that it sounds like you're already doing that with the core board. So with the device, it could be an even better way to support your other device users in the classroom. So would you let him model on their device, even though we don't let allow other kids to, or would you give him his own device to model that way? Well, I think that it depends on the situation. Um, some students are protective over their AAC and they don't like people touching it. So it, it yeah. kind of just depends, but I don't see I don't see a problem with definitely having a device for him to model on, but it, it, it just kind of depends on the student. Like some kids are totally fine seeing other people model on their device and that could be a really effective strategy um, because it's right in front of them and they see it and they can imitate that model if they want to um, versus the tracking, the visual tracking that it takes to, you know, look at somebody else's device and then go back to your own device and find, you know, that word and that motor plan. But again, it's kind of situational to, you know, the students and kind of what has been set up in the classroom. Erin, can I ask what grade level is the student in or how old is the student just in general? I'm in a preschool room. So um, I'm in a developmental preschool room. So he is four, but I have kids that are three to five in the classroom and over half of them are are nonverbal. So I'm working on trying to get all of them a way to communicate. And are you, are you hybrid or are you hundred percent distance? No, we are in school um, five days a week. Gotcha. Okay. So one other idea. Right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Thanks. But one other idea you might consider for this student is if you have those, like you said, he's the core helper, right? Core board helper. If those boards Mm -hmm. could be placed around the school to start building that culture that we were talking about, I could totally see this kid Mm -hmm. bringing in his device and doing like a little show and tell for the kindergarten class. Sometimes you might see these pictures up around the the school. I use these, you know, I use this. You might see other people use this just to start to raise awareness of kids that they're growing up with other kids who use these devices. Yeah, he would be good at that. <laughs> Sounds like he likes to talk. So great. Let's use that to oh, our advantage. Yes. All right. We've got about now that he finally talks. Awesome. Thank we've you got about, for sharing. We've got about seven minutes left. We're, Thank you. we're definitely not going to get to all the questions, but let's try and do one more, Rachel, at least one more. Let's do it. Here we go. Any strategies for a child who types scripts and stims on typing on his device? Okay. 
I'm going to give my quick story about this. We were doing training, this, this impact model training that I was talking about. We were teaching people partner augmented input. And there was a teacher that told this story. She's like, I had a student that had a communication device and all he did was stim on it. He, and so we kept like, what do you, they asked the exact same question. What do you do? So, well, can you describe what he stims on? Yeah. He goes over and he types H A H A H A. And he just does that over and over and over again. H A H A. I'm like, he's not stimming. He's laughing. <laughs> right. And the, and the eyes opened up like, oh, I never even considered that maybe the stim behavior has some sort of function or purpose. Like maybe it wasn't stim at all. Maybe it was he was trying to communicate something uh, that and we interpreted it as stim behavior. Now, I'm not saying I don't know nothing other than the text that was written on this. It actually could be stim behavior that's happening. But I would lead with the mentality because uh, I often find teachers don't, and I didn't for many years, that if I see STEM behavior, I immediately limbed it, I labeled it as STEM behavior, as opposed to thinking, hmm, what are they trying to communicate with that? And what can I do with that? I like that mind shift, Chris, because I think that it's easy to kind of fall into that's stimming, that's stimming, that's not functional. But I think if we change the lens through which we look at, it can be really helpful. And I, I do think that it's also worth mentioning that students self-regulate through stimming behavior. You know, I realize that it's sometimes very inconvenient and disruptive to a classroom and it feels as if they're, they're not communicating functionally. So it, it's, it's definitely a challenge when it is true stimming behavior, trying to shape it if you can, you know, for that example, Chris, I feel like that you gave with the, the ha 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 ha, you know, creating a functional opportunity for then the child to say, ha, 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 like having somebody tell a joke. And then the student gets to respond um, in a functional way. So I always try to shape it if I can, or, or sometimes try to attach a different language to it. I had a student that was um, stim-like behavior on all of the people, um, which I say that with a caveat, Perhaps she wanted to see all those people. And so she was just hitting those buttons because she missed her mom and her grandma and everybody else that was on the device. But one great strategy is trying to work with communication partners, especially parents, because I feel like they know their kids best um, and trying to figure out like, what do you think she's trying to say right now? And so when I did that with this student, mom was like, oh, she wants to FaceTime. She loves FaceTiming people. And so we added FaceTime to the device. And then at least she's able to say, you know, FaceTime grandma. Um, we don't always get to FaceTime grandma every time we want to, but it's, it's really important to try to map what we're seeing happening um, with the language that could be a really useful and meaningful opportunity. Because we know when kids are doing something automatically independently, that there's at least some type of motivation. So trying to get to the bottom of what that motivation is and how to attach language to that motivation um, to see a lot of, of gains. So we could go on because, but we're, we're running out of time. The last thing I'll mention about that question is social situations, stories, or social narratives might help there where there's the student might not know how stimming is affecting other people. So you could teach them that, Hey, when you make these noises, other people hear them and it makes your, you know, you could write a story about that that they could read. Rachel, we're out of time, but there was a question that came through the direct message that I wanted to ask you. So it was a direct message. I'm going to read it out to you. It says, 
people are asking where to get the shirts. Where can people get a Talking With Tech shirt if they want a Talking With Tech shirt? Oh my goodness. I'm so excited about that question. So that's eventually going to be on our website. I don't know if we have it. Did we, did we post it on our website yet? It's in the works for sure. We have a Zazzle store. So let me see if actually I can find it. I think it's just zazzle.com backslash talking with tech. Well, everybody, thank you again for this awesome time. Katie, you have uh, some, some words to, to take us out? Yeah. So thank you so much, Chris and Rachel. This has uh, been amazing um, time with you guys and um, lots of tips that I love that people got to ask questions and we have some real uh, great strategies and tools to take back with us. So this concludes our session. Thanks everybody. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. We had so much fun. Bye everybody.